From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Golf course superintendent Dan Danelli and former professional golfer Carl Scamenti joined me on the program. Three Italian guys, if you will, chatting about course playability, firmness, and analytics a golf course superintendent can use. Big thanks to our sponsors, Dryjack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and the Plant Food Company, serving the nutrient management needs of the golf industry since 1981. We really appreciate your support of these sponsors. I've been really fascinated with your exploration recently of firmness and the current topic. And it was something you touched on in a video a while ago, that YouTube video where you were bouncing the ball off the sand and the composted treated fairways that would get firmer uh, when they dried out. And the sand was generally more consistent. As our conversation about firmness, you concluded, hey, I can get them pretty consistent with sand, but they get rock hard. Uh, you know, with the with the compost in there. So that's what I remember you discussing. Now you've got the greens that you built, rebuilt a few years ago. And, you know, they've been really teaching you a lot about uh, management and stuff. And now you've sort of turned to firmness. And I think what I think is fascinating how you, is you've incorporated design into this stand. So I want to explore this with you over the next 15, 20 minutes and chat about first from a design perspective, you know, you redid the place and you had an architect help you out. And you commented in our offline conversation that getting the place firm is sort of the way the guys are designing it to be played. Now, there probably are some like that, some courses like that, and some not like that. But let's start there, right? When you started right. thinking about firmness and you had to rebuild and interact with the architects, where would you tell superintendents to begin to start thinking about this for the course playability? Well, first, thanks for having me, Frank. You know, I always love visiting with you and chatting and, and talking shop. So yeah. I appreciate it. And yeah, you're right. So the renovation project really woke me up to some of these concepts that they're not new, but they're new to me in a way. And you realize golf's really a game of angles. And those angles for quite some time during my early part of my tenure anyways, were kind of hidden and dwarfed by the trees that many facilities like ours overplanted in the name of trying to protect par. And so now you've got these broader runways down these fairways, for example, where golf shots can be more broad. You think your first reaction is, well, the, the course is going to play easier. And it's really not true. The course is really playing more how it was designed is really the probably a fair comment or, or assessment. So, so in the redo, did you expand your fairways, expand your approaches, give your players more ground-based options to play the course? Is that what you're talking about, that wider fairways should make it easier? Correct. And it's it, for me right now, it's a lot to do with the corridors and pushing the trees back right? The open corridors. And then, and then you're right, the introduction of runoffs and areas that you're enhancing short mode turf areas. You know, I remember as a kid, the term was used a lot to protect par. You'd plant trees, add bunkers, you know, grow rough, tall. And it really took away parts of the game in some ways. And those ways are being better appreciated now. And it's opening up angles. And what I mean by that like our little par five or our hole number five, par four, rather. It's it's a 400 yard hole roughly, and it's a slight dog leg to the right. And if you can visualize a putting green about 30 feet deep, 
fairly long, you know, typical green where the first two thirds is sloped towards play and the back third is sloped a little bit flatter, a little bit behind, you know, back and kind of traditional, if you will. But put that on an angle, about 25 degrees, twist it on an angle, the green itself with the bunkers that are both on the left and the right side. So now you've got that right side bunker. If you twisted it clockwise, the green complex protecting much of the front of the green. So if you're on the tee, now you have an open view since we push the trees back to the green and you think the shortest, easiest route would be go straight at that green. And there's a fairway bunker on the left. So why would you want to flirt with that fairway bunker on the left? Well, the whole concept is by design is the person that flirts closest to that fairway bunker on the left has now the open alley in. And that open alley in becomes more important as the firmness increases. Otherwise, you just stick, you know, what do they call it? You just you're throwing darts at the pin. Yeah, yeah. So you've outlined that the way the game can be played and the way the course may have been meant to be designed until it got overplanted in this concept of being more penal, it sort of overemphasized the importance of shooting it straight. And now the firmness comes into it more because if you're trying to play an angle and you want it to be in a certain spot with a big club in your hand, you're usually trying to land it one place and let it roll to another place. Exactly. Right? So, exactly. so we're finally figuring out firm greens. We've long said you can't have firm greens with soft approaches. You have to have firmness that's compatible. And now you're taking the firmness discussion out to the fairway and you're talking about scaling a pretty big operation. But let's make sure we're talking about the right kind of firmness there. Is that what you're worried about, that they'll be too firm, that it'll be so hard that your maybe aging golf population won't be able to play them? Is that a bit of a concern? Not yet. <laughs> you know, I don't <laughs> think so. It's uh, I don't want to say firmer is better, but I'd say generally, yes. To get them too firm, it's almost like green speeds. How often do you hear greens are too fast? You know, you, There are times, obviously, and it depends on undulations and et cetera. But, but the name of the game is to make the golfer think. And if you're making the golfer think about club selection, placement, ball placement, playing conditions that day. So let's say we've been in a drought. Like last year was a nice, long, dry year. We had good control of the moisture that played firm and fast. Well, he or she better hang left on that hole, number five there, to play that alley up. Otherwise, they got a bunker they got to play over and a runoff on the backside of the green. And they got to stick that ball, which means they got to hit a heck of a pinch shot. And uh, it's going to be very difficult. Your better, safest way is to come in from the left and come up the throat. And that only works when it's firm. When it's wet, all that strategy gets compromised. And then the thought process isn't as important and the shot value isn't quite as important. So it adds elasticity to the game from day to day and it makes the golfer think. So hopefully that all equates to a more enjoyable experience, not so to make it necessarily perfect. harder. That's right. Okay. So this is interesting because I've often thought about this, right? And you and I have been at this long enough to know, you know, after every Masters, everybody's demanding greener grass. After every U.S. Open, everybody's demanding faster greens. And then after every British Open or Open Championship, if you will, everybody's saying, oh, let's let our place play fast and firm, right? We call for these different things at different times in the year. And I've seen golf course superintendents deliver on these kinds of demands uh, like this, maybe not in the same season, but certainly demands of this. But then the golfers don't know how to play it. 
they don't have the skill. It's not necessarily harder, but they got to think their way around a little bit more. And they're unable to make the adjustments in their game because, you know, they're not very good. They hit one shot. They don't shape the ball like a pro or a really good golfer. So my question is, how does firmer, which I think if we manage it right, is going to inherently be less inputs, I think. I don't know. We're going to chat about that in a second. But I wonder, is it going to be something that will still work for golfers that don't adapt as well? What, what are your thoughts on that? We're just, you know, you know speculating. I think it will, Frank, because in, in a weird way, it also shortens the hole up. So if you're a high handicap, mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. assume you're not hitting the ball quite as far. So now you're getting a longer roll. For the harder hitter, that means those angles need to become more precise and the ball can possibly roll through your target into trouble. So I think it almost, in a weird way, once there's some adaptation from the golfer's perspective, once you give it some time to evolve into their personal games, I think it helps to level load the the game a little better, actually. I mean, obviously, we're talking the meat of it all. If you talk to two extremes, that's different. The real poor golfer and the real elite golfer. But that zone in the middle, I think it kind of helps those people. And pushing those trees out, you know, banging balls around trees in the woods, that's not fun. And that's not, that's more luck than it is talent at times. So, so I think it, it opens the game up and it truly does make it more enjoyable for a broader audience. Okay. So now it seems to me the question that you've also raised is the interaction between the ball and these nice firm surfaces. And we'll take our discussion now, primarily we can assume maybe to the approach and to the put to the putting surface, especially where, you know, the ball is going to have or have not some spin on it. And this has been, you know, looked at in the past, but the Sports Turf Research Institute did this many years ago using a uh, fast camera, a high speed camera. This was probably in the 70s and 80s. Professor Canaway did this back then. And they began to look at what you were been talking to me about offline is, is how the ball comes in and what kind of strength that soil uh, sand-based systems now on a green need to provide the kind of firmness that, you know, is manageable and fair and addresses both when a shot comes in on a flat angle versus how a shot comes in uh, a well-struck shot, you'd assume, on a steep angle where the ball's going to have maybe a little bit more spin on it. So talk to me a little bit about what got you thinking about this before we go down the rabbit hole here. (laughs) Many (laughs) rabbit holes out there. Um, Well, honestly, it was watching those new sand-based greens evolve. You know, I paid really close attention to those things daily, like, you know, all superintendents do. But but it was kind of fascinating to watch how they evolved and how that mat layer plays such an important role. And that's nothing new or novel. You know, we all recognize that. But it just made me think more about our addiction to sand and its role and how to possibly improve the plane surfaces where sand gives us some great advantages. But I think there's more to learn about using sand and, and that whole matrix that the turf grass develops at and near the surface a lot evolves around that area. And it that to me means more about the integration of cohesiveness properties than the sand properties. So we've done a lot of testing and, and recognized some of these values, you know, the penetrometer test, the CUs and, and the slope, you know, we've got a lot of things out there that really help direct us with bunker sands. And I think we try to relate that to planes or other plane surfaces that are turf covered 
and think that there's a direct correlation across there. And what I mean by that is that we take these vertical data points, right? The CLEG and the firmness uh, tools that are out there. And to your point earlier, the ball isn't dropping straight down. And that normal stress doesn't tell the whole picture, I think, where it should be possibly combined with shear strength with that vertical testing. Now, we've got some shear strength tools in sports turf that don't translate to putting greens at all because it's a cleat traction, rotational friction measurement. But I can remember having these conversations with Norm Hummel and with Chris Tritabaugh and others that I've had on the show over the years, even Rock to a certain extent, probably we might have touched on it when we were all together. And that is the importance of having a good solid spread of particles as well. I mean, I think one of the things we've seen is that our already narrowly graded sand is getting even more narrowly graded because of the canopy's impact on the sand size that makes it in, because we're reliant on in-season cultivation as much as out-of-season cultivation. So I'm wondering, one of the things in a bunker sand is certainly from a shape perspective, that's a qualitative measure that we're trying to get some way of determining it. You know, having coarser sand with angular size is going to set up better. But I thought your point about how sands aggregate, right? How you get this aggregation in sands, the clods that build around the groups that then create that mat layer. Micah Woods is talking about the OM246. Do you think we could measure that stuff in the top two centimeters or two millimeters? And maybe that's going to help us understand how to get this stuff firmer for you? I think we definitely got to do a deeper dive in the whole organic matter study. And I guess the point I'm trying to make a good visual comes to mind is we spent as much money on our bunkers as we did our greens, right? Three years ago with our renovation, importing in the pro angle sand that works really, really well in bunkers. And it's got a high penetrative penetrometer reading of 4.5 and it's got a CU of like 4.3. Okay. It's a rough surface sand aggregate. So there's a lot of friction. It interlocks wonderfully and you hardly make a footprint walking into it, right? Mm-hmm. It's firm. In fact, you feel like your club face won't go through it. It's that firm. You got to just trust it, right? You've, you've walked on many of those white yeah, sands. So, right. So let's just say that is like, you know, the best sand out there in firmness that you can probably have access to. How much does a ball bounce on that? How does the ball react on that surface when it comes in in that same flight versus a putting green? It usually hits and then maybe spins out a little bit, depending on the angle with which it comes in. Correct. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same uh, resiliency as a putting surface would have. Or no, no, no. The ball, I mean, guys are bragging about bouncing their balls, you know, up to hip height, taking a golf ball, bouncing it on their greens. You can't do that on the best bunker sands out there that I've ever seen. So that's my whole point. We we focus on the sand particle size, the sand particle size distribution, the shape and blah, blah, blah. But it really, the rubber hits the road when the turf is growing on it. Well, that's right. But listen, part of this exploration is revisiting the conundrum of the way we view organic matter and the sort of myopic way we view it biologically without any regard for the practical implications of it, right? And so, you know, we use numbers like percentage, right? I mean, the Bob Caro numbers and then Rock redid all those numbers, right? You get all these percentage targets that guys are shooting for and then you drop the true firm and you want to be in the high twos or whatever those ideal numbers are, 
And that's the best we got. You're introducing a different question that's saying, well, when the ball's coming in on a spin on a green, could it be firm by a true firm measurement, but still not be firm based on the strength that that soil has when the ball hits it with the English on it, so to speak? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And that's what I've seen as I saw those new greens evolve. You can even feel it when you repair a ball mark. Anyone that's grown in a new sand-based green would feel that. There's very little integrity there as you as you repair a ball mark because that matrix, that network of roots and organic matter, what we call the mat layer, hasn't evolved and developed or matured yet. Again, that's nothing new, but what can we learn about that process to enhance the playability that reflects on the receptiveness of that ball shot, which we generalize as firmness? That's right. And and that vertical drop. I, in fact, so let's say let's say I was your grad student, I'd be like. Dr. Rossi, one of the things I like to try, for example, instead of having that round thing that's supposed to represent a golf ball, which makes sense, you would maybe want to start there. But suppose we replace that with a wedge, a wedge device that wants to embed itself in that surface a little bit more instead of just dimple it. Could that get us closer to a representation of what the ball is responding to, what we generally call firmness? But I think it's a combination of firmness and sheer strength. And so then if we accept sheer strength as part of the dynamic here, then that leads me down the rabbit holes of, you know, what does wetting agents do to that with cohesiveness? How can we enhance cohesiveness properties? What plant genetics can possibly enhance that cohesiveness properties from sand that's cohesive? Mm-hmm. We all know that building sandcastles, right? You watch kids building sandcastles. If the sand's really dry, what, what do they do? Yeah. If they're really wet, what do they do? They can form them into anything they want. When they're moist, they can, you know, that right amount of water, not too much, not too little, adds just that little bit of cohesiveness to build a little bit of a sandcastle. So what are we building in cohesiveness and reinforcement? And that's what got me interested in these fibers. So I did some test plots this last fall, developing some turf plots and some top dressing. Could artificial fibers enhance that network, especially in the spring of the year when our root systems aren't so active and perhaps the surfaces don't respond like they do later in the year when the turf is more actively growing, perhaps things are firmer because they're drier also. So those are the thoughts that start to pop in my mind as I try to better understand what are the dynamics here that we're actually after. And I think it's beyond the CU and sand and our, you know, I think that all helps support foot traffic. I think it helps support uh, equipment. It helps support playability, obviously. Yeah, there's no Uh, question about the fact you get the most out of your rolling and your mowing in particular when you have firm surfaces. Those uh, pieces of equipment were designed to roll on a surface that can withstand it and it's going to tolerate it. And over time, a programmatic approach is going to build that firmness. Now, listen, Dan, as we wrap up here, I just want to ask you to talk a little bit about growth in all of this. Is there a way now that these things are mature? You've got your mat layer. You're watching the ball respond differently. What's your thinking going into the season about how much growth you want to support the firmness ideas you've got in your head? I want just enough growth, ideally, to stay ahead of where. That's it. If I had to summarize that, that's it. Perfect. No, that's it. no more than that. Now, the, the tough thing is... There are some places where you need that a little bit more and some places on your greens where they might be false areas, you need them a little bit less because of the traffic. Correct. How long until you think you're going to adopt some more site-specific approach to doing that? 
or will it ever not be worth the time for you? No, I think that's a great idea. I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to understand this whole concept of shear strength as it pertains to soil and the bio crust that's, you know, that we're managing on the surface um, and how, you know, we've always talked about this and obviously I respect science very highly. And, but yet for some reason, science can't tease out the impacts of using surfactants, some of these surfactants on putting surfaces, even on fairways. And you talk to superintendents and they'll tell you, especially if they don't get watered in really deeply, mm-hmm. there's something about the surface that we call it softer. And may, that may not be a fair term used. I, I'm going to say some of these surfactants may interfere with the cohesive properties. Like I talked about the sandcastle. Right. If you break the surface tension of that water now, that's trying mm-hmm. to hold those little sand particles together slightly. Mm-hmm. Now the sand castle is going to collapse even with that same amount of moisture mm-hmm. in theory. Okay. So listen, I don't want to open up the other wormhole going down wedding agents, Dan. So I'm going to thank you for what is only the beginning to what I hope is a conversation we get to have uh, every couple of months uh, here on Frankly Speaking. Thanks for taking the time uh, out of your nice and cold schedule there uh, in Chicago. You guys are awful cold these days. And I look forward to having you back on the show uh, pretty soon, Dan. Thanks for the chat, pal. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. Dan Danelli is the golf course superintendent at North Shore Country Club outside Chicago, Illinois, and recipient of the GCSAA President's Award for Environmental Stewardship. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. I'd like to take a minute and talk to you about Dryject Services that offers unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefits of water injection cultivation and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service available throughout the U.S. and used by many of the great golf courses. I've personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand and at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject services representative or visit dryject.com. The plant food company of Cranberry, New Jersey, founded in 1944 by Edward Platts, began formulating liquid fertilizer in 1981 for the golf industry. I became familiar with them in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was being initiated and they immediately wanted to support our efforts to reduce pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. Other universities, such as Rutgers in New Jersey, found the plant food programs to be excellent solutions to anthracnose problems, performing equally to most fungicide programs. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. So welcome to Frankly Speaking, Carl Scamenti. Carl's uh, been a program manager both for our Cornell Turfgrass program as well as our state park program now for the last five years we've been working together, Carl. And we've been having these conversations pretty much since the day you joined because of your previous life uh, as a professional golfer member of the Cornell golf team. And and now it's uh, progressed to where we're calling it Turfgrass Moneyball and, and analytics is uh, more of a part of a vernacular not just of baseball, but of course, as we can see with Brian DeChambeau and Maverick McNeely now, you're starting to see the beginning of the use of analytics and enhancing performance and scoring. And, and, you know, I know you like to make it simple with me sometimes, swing it hard, hit it far, and you're going to score better. 
But let's start there, Carl, with some general analytics, numbers superintendents need to know. You and I start in these conversations on a regular basis that'll be part of our conversation in 2021 here on Frankly Speaking. Let's start with this idea of corridors and what the average golfer wants to see and how it impacts their game as they play a golf course. Uh, Maybe that's a Parkland golf course, right? Where there's clear ideas of corridors hole to hole. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of times, Frank, when people say the word corridors in golf, you hear golf architects probably refer to that. And it's usually kind of the tree line, right? And you say, ah, tree line to tree line, that's kind of the corridor. But uh, as you and I know, average golfers, they don't keep the ball inside the tree line, right? You know, they, they can go all different t- types of directions. And, you know, as a golfer myself, I was kind of wondering, okay, is there any data out there that tells us about how the average golfer hits it. We know kind of how far they hit it. The USGA and RNA have done a ton of research there, but do we know kind of how far left and right they hit it? So searching searching for some data, and the RNA has actually a really cool study. It's buried in the USGA Distance Insight Report, but what they've done is every, every year since 1996, they've been at six different golf courses over there. Every year, they go once a year at each golf course. They sit on two holes, and they just chart all of the shots that anybody hits on that given day. Uh, and so the data looks a lot like what you see on a PGA Tour telecast, all the dots around, and they, see, they show you, here's where everybody hit it today. So they gather all that data over years and years. And what I was interested in is, is they have what they call dispersion. And so over the years, they've measured dispersion left and right, and also based on how far people hit it too. So if you look at the people who hit it about 190 yards, their dispersion's about 65 yards. So, you know, 32 yards to the left of the fairway, 32 yards, right? So, okay, you know, that's kind of interesting. And then kind of the common sense I would have thought was as people hit it farther, the ball starts going further offline. And what the data shows is that's actually not the case. It's the inverse. As people start hitting it farther, it's about the same width, 62, 63, 65 yards. But as people get beyond 250 yards, it actually shrinks down. So that's kind of interesting. Okay. You know, as you hit it longer, they actually hit it slightly straighter. But then you think back to, you said earlier, longer play, hit it hard, uh, watch your scores go down. That's kind of the mantra there. Well, I mean, I'm thinking a little bit, if I'm spraying it, you know, I get the banana hook going. So, so, you know, my spread will be fairly wide. Now, there's a couple of things that come to my mind, right? Why is this important for a golf course superintendent to understand? And I just had a conversation with Dan Dinelli about, corridors and firmness of the surface. Like a lot of this data that we hear about, they don't always characterize the surface. They don't always give us as course managers the chance to say, okay, that's my target. That's the firmness that I need. But let's stay with why is the corridor idea important for a golf course superintendent to be able to know maybe how to impact management? Yeah, you think of a typical golf course, I don't know, 170 acres, 150, somewhere around there. But obviously not all of that area is being used by the golfers. And when we can start to identify using this sort of data, hey, here's where most of the traffic is occurring. We always think about how much traffic is occurring on certain parts of the golf course. Usually we think around greens, tees, there's the pinch points. But, um, you know, this data kind of shows us, hey, you can kind of focus in on the fairways even, kind of blocks or squares of traffic. And so what I would say with this data is, you know, you take the, the normal team, most of your players play, you go 180 yards from there, and then you just make a big box that's 65 yards wide all the way up to 250. And that's kind of where most of the shots should end up for average golfers. And then you can start thinking about how you might tailor your management practices in that block compared to other places, right? So there's going to be higher traffic there, maybe more divots. Do you have to up the fertilization levels there? And maybe you can drop it in other areas. 
further up or, or way back of that. Um, maybe you could start considering the players who need more help, maybe who need more distance in golf. Maybe you try and firm up the areas that are 180, 200 yards off the tee. And then when you start getting out there near 300, maybe those players who are hitting it that far don't need all the extra roll, right? So you could start to try and be a little bit more precise about how you want to manage the surfaces uh, and also kind of take into consideration the level of player too. And if you want to vary that challenge based on- That's right. And so that makes me think of- you know, like you said, the corridor being tree to tree line. I'm wondering about what we see a growing trend for many new, particularly northern, but also southern golf courses is wide, closely mown areas. You know, you go to the work Courier and McDonald did down there at, at Glen Oaks and, and you look at a lot of the renovations and, and places where golf is catching on wide, wide fairways. Is that always going to make it easier. I mean, I was talking to Danelli just a minute ago and he was like, yeah, people think it's easier when the grass is cut shorter for golfers, but it, it may not necessarily be easier. What's your thoughts on, uh, before we get into sort of firmness and then into, you know, what we're hitting the ball into and continuing the conversation about traffic there, let's talk a little bit more from your perspective as a golfer and in your knowledge of what an average golfer will do what are your thoughts on widening close mown areas? What what does that bring to the game? Yeah, I think, you know, architects will talk a lot about strategy and the angles and wider fairways creates more kind of different angles you can try and approach the green with and be more strategic. And then also that width, as I said, you know, 65, 70 yards is the dispersion for average golfers. Well, we should probably cover that with short grass, right? Because we want it to be easy for those golfers. And I think in general, it probably makes it a little bit easier, but there are preferences. If you look at some surveys from uh, some Scandinavian organizations, they asked older folks and younger folks how they want their ball to sit. Uh, And actually the older folks tended to say they want a little bit more cushion under the ball. Uh, It's almost like a tee. And so if you think of almost a first cut, that would be almost preferable for for maybe some older folks or people who want a little bit more forgiveness in the strike. So, you know, overall, I think making courses wider probably makes it more fun. It makes it easier to find the golf ball. But there's certainly some considerations for how easy it is to pick that ball off the turf for a poorer player compared to to a better player who can really benefit from. Well, and I got to think from my perspective, it must be nice to have a game that's good enough. You can think about angles. I'm trying to get the ball as far down the damn fairway as I can get it. You know what I mean, Carl? So I'm thinking short grass, firm ground. I can drive it straight 200 yards and let it roll 50 and I'm going to call it good. Mm-hmm. So, so there is this aspect to the benefits you get from the close cut grass. Cause I know you showed me data that says just a few feet off into the, you know, people that don't have a step cut or into the higher grass, generally the scoring is worse in that area. Yeah. So that's some really cool data from Lou Stagner, who's uh, at Golf Step Pro, I think is his Twitter account, but he looks at all the shot link data and there's such a wealth of data in the shot link system that you hear all, all the time on the telecasts. And he can literally go in and look at, at one yard increments, how players perform from the rough one yard into the rough, two yards, three yards, four yards. And what you see is, is really interesting. The hardest place in the rough, if you're within 15 yards uh, in the rough, the hardest place to be is one yard into the rough. And if we think about it, that starts to make sense because, okay, the sprinkler heads are there. 
your pit's probably getting a little extra water. You're probably overlap a little bit on your sprays if you don't have a GPS sprayer. So that starts, you know, using all this kind of advanced data on tour starts to inform us about, is that maybe something we want on our golf course? Do we want the first yard of rough to be harder than 10 yards into the rough? It's really interesting to mine that data. Well, I think we're just scratching the surface. I think we're just scratching the surface because, you know, lately hanging around with me on a regular basis, I got a drum beat going. Why aren't golf courses saying... If you are this kind of golfer, like the Beth Page Black, don't play here. Go play, go play somewhere else. And golfers are these unique people who particularly like to get treated badly uh, by a golf course, have a horrible experience, and will willing to pay even more for that experience. Because I wonder what you're describing is the push pull we get. Yeah, well, the majority of the golfers that we might have at you know at certain clubs might be. The rounds might be by people over the age of 60. If you're in Australia, the majority of the rounds are over the age of 60. And so those people are going to want these softer things. But wait, wait, wait. The golf course is set up to get short and tight and firm and fast. And then you got the low handicappers really want that. And so there's this push-pull. Why can't we break the nut of telling golfers, you play here? Don't I don't care what color the tee is. You play here. <laughs> You know, I think golf as a business, you want to be everything to everybody. And that can be just so hard when you're in the restraints of how a golf course is laid out. It can be really difficult to try and cater both to the average player and to the advanced player. And I think it's it's interesting. Beth Page Black is a very successful public facility, very well known. And they're very upfront about what that golf course is. It is a hard golf course. There's a sign on the first tee that says, (laughs) you better be good or you're going to have a rough time out here. But not every golf course should be like that. And I think you mentioned one time, Frank, uh, you know, ski slopes have ratings and and we kind of have a course rating on the scorecard. You can look at a course. Nobody understands that, Carl. No one understands slope rating. No, no one does. And, and I think you're you're getting to a point here where it's an interesting conversation. Should facilities kind of lean into what they have and should they try and market that way? Um, but a lot of times the, the golf course built 60 years ago, does that align with the demographics now? It's a really tough problem. But I think this data starts to, to get us closer to kind of figuring out what your identity is and if you can make changes to kind of adapt. And part of that identity is with the next shot into the putting surface. Let's just, let's assume we're playing a par four or a par five and we're hitting our next shot. I think the average golfer to USGA says can hit the green 50% of the time from 130 yards in general, right? But you've gone a little bit further and started to look at the areas that putting greens take up. And again, along the lines of traffic, as we've been able to look at some of our state park data, which has generated quite a bit of interest in some of the presentations I gave uh, this past season that was showing our lower organic matter levels on some of these putting surfaces. Why don't you speak a little bit about the way, the kind of data you're looking at in assessing uh, putting green management and traffic? Yeah, so you know, I, th- I think that the metaphor here is a lot like old school baseball. We looked at batting average. You looked at strikes and walkouts. And as time advances, you start learning about uh, OPS and war and, and it's kind of the next level of those statistics. And I think for us, something like rounds, rounds per year is, is a pretty standard metric to quantify traffic, right? I get 20,000 rounds, 10,000 rounds. And people could even break that, you know, rounds per month, right? If you're in a different growing season, that's something. But, you know, it's also important to consider how much golf course is there. 20,000 rounds on a golf course with five acres of greens is much different than 20,000 rounds of a golf course that has 1.5 acres of greens. So 
you know, what we've been talking about and looking at in the data is, is rounds per acre or rounds per square foot on a putting surface. So you could start to look at different golf courses and say, okay, this golf course maybe gets a little less traffic, 10,000 rounds a year, but wow, they have small greens. So when you look at a rounds per square foot metric, ah, wow, their, their traffic density is actually higher than another golf course. And so I think that's really it's useful for us to kind of look at a golf course to golf course. For a manager, when you have greens that are, you know, I, I was looking at uh, one of our state park golf courses, Shenango Valley, beautiful golf course in the woods, Larry Specky up there. He's got a green that's 9,600 square feet and a green that's 2,200 square feet. So one green literally four times smaller than the other green and is getting four times more traffic. That's going to have to be managed different, right? So you have to start thinking about the growth rates, the fertility that's going to be on that green different uh, you know, between those two surfaces. I think it starts to get us closer to really that site-specific management and, and kind of being able to pull the dials on your own golf course, green to green, tee to tee, par three tees is another thing you could do. You know, rounds per square foot there, that's a really easy thing you could come up with. And it really starts to quantify how much traffic is occurring on those surfaces. And then you can start to make adjustments from that. Well, just like one layer down that a lot of guys are thinking about, they're always thinking about this is hole location. You know, you can look at it like how many hole locations do you have? Some places will, you know, make sure they've got 14 to 20 so that doesn't have to come back into the same spot all the time. Uh, that has been a measure of the intensity of traffic that an area will get. But even on a par three tee, Carl, sometimes you got a tree hanging over or you got the tee shaped in a way that, and, you know, you're not going to use the very front or the very back five or 10 feet, whatever it is there. And you say, OK, just like we talk to sports turf managers, especially guys who manage American football fields. Hey, between the 20s, between the hash marks, I want you to budget for a lot more inputs there than I care about the corners of the darn end zone or the corner kicks that happen every once in a while uh, in a soccer field. So this kind of site specific management is not in revolutionary in its in its no. sort of context. We think about it in any of our areas where turf gets trafficked at a heavier rate than another place. But I want to get into your golf head a little bit because, you know, there's a certain amount of, okay, I got a wide corridor and I would think, I don't know anything about architecture, but typically par fives have really small greens uh, and mm -hmm. you know, fours and threes might have bigger greens. Uh, but how do you look at it from a playability perspective? I just rattled off the 130 yards every other time. What would you say a superintendent should be talking to their golfers about relative to, here's the approach. I got it on this firmness. Consider playing it this way. What about a little bit more directive from superintendents about how to play the course based on the conditions that they're able to provide with their soil types or their management conditions? What do you think about that? Yeah, so I think it's important to understand, first of all, how far an average golfer hits it and where the tees are set up to. I think course distance is, you know, obviously it's how far the ball goes, a big topic at the PJ Tour level, but you know, the amateur level, the ball doesn't really go far enough for where they're playing it. Um, <laughs> you know, an average golfer hitting at 217 yards should basically be playing a 5,800-yard golf course. That does not happen. Less than 1% of facilities is that happening. So as a superintendent, I think you need to start adjusting, either trying to firm up. If you can't get people to move up tees, maybe firming up the fairways is the way to go because you get them closer to the green. Let's get them closer to the green. By effectively kind of shortening the golf course in that sense, you can speed up round time. You can decrease scores, which leads to enjoyment. I think that's one of the things they can focus on. The other thing is, is just kind of baselining golfers' expectations. And the way you can do that is just by knowing some simple things. A PGA Tour pro makes a putt 
from eight feet 50% of the time. You might see a Torpedo miss an eight-footer on Sunday and you go, oh my God, he screwed it up. But that's a 50-50 shot. If, if you go to 100 yards in the fairway, you can drop a ball for a Torpedo. The average distance they will hit it to is 18 feet. That usually blows people's minds. Announcers all the time say- They're always oh, saying, oh, they were expecting better than that. They, that's the funny thing. We're sitting here looking at the data, listening to those knuckleheads call the golf. And I'm thinking- <laughs> what they say totally contradicts what the data says. And they're like, ah, screw the data, you know, certain Nick, you know, that kind of baloney. But I, I wonder, since you brought it up, Carl, this comes up during the swing out West that the tour is on these days where they're playing those beautiful putting surfaces up and down the Pacific coast, Torrey Pines, and then recently up at Pebble and Spyglass. And now they're back down at Riv and, you know, different grasses and different places. But um, much is made. And, you know, that Lashley guy had a four putt. Brando Chambly and all those idiots, they, oh, they can't talk about how bumpy the thing is. Now, mm-hmm. Carl, you and I, uh, to the listeners, I don't think anybody knows how much you and I think about bumpiness of greens <laughs> because we're in the business of evaluating, partnering with FootJoy to assess and develop the next generation of golf shoes that are more uh, greens friendly, preserve the greens uh, better than maybe some other sorts of shoes. We'll we'll go down that wormhole in a minute, but can we talk for a second about how they couldn't shut up about how beautiful Rabby's greens were at Wingfoot, the same hundred percent damn pole greens, pole greens with, you know, with all those knuckleheads who don't know what they're talking about, call them versus out there in the Pacific Northwest. Listen, I was just out there and I can tell you, they don't look bumpy to me. And I watch these really long putts, Carl. They don't look bumpy when I see them on TV. I don't think Lashley missed four putts because they were bumpy. What say you as a professional golfer? You know, I, I think there's we have to draw the line between perception and reality. And so where I'd first draw it is, okay, let, let's look at those events and, and see if there's any data that tells us um, if they make putts at a different rate. And, and so Lou Stagner, again, he, he's great on Twitter. He actually looked up make rates from three to six feet at tournaments like Pebble Beach, Riviera, Torrey Pines, kind of that West Coast where we start to hear the bumpy poet chatter by, by Faldo. And then some other courses, Quail Isle, TPC Four Seasons, some more standard golf courses. And there is a noticeable decrease in make Great. So about 3% fewer putts they make on courses like Pebble and Riviera, Torrey Pines. So the data says, okay, yeah, they're not making putts at the same rate at those golf courses, uh, which have POA, but we can't necessarily draw the conclusion that it's the POA that's causing that. And I think we hear there was a great graphic this week with, with Pebble Beach. Uh, the first nine greens at Pebble Beach have a, a lower square footage than the 18th green at St. Andrews, basically illustrating the point. There's really small greens at Pebble Beach. And when we test golf shoes, Frank, for their putting surface friendliness, we think about that traffic rate again. And we notice that as you put more traffic on a putting surface, the smoothness ratings go down, the speed changes. And so when you think about really small greens and those West Coast courses, Riv and Pebble, small greens, old school, very sloped. So, okay, you probably have more traffic rates. You also got to think of the pro-ams, right? We've got Larry the Cable Guy and Bill Murray running around the green and their caddies. So we're adding more traffic on those holes. And the other thing is we don't, uh, there's tournaments sometimes with pro-ams, they don't change the, the pin. The first three days, the pin stays the same. So, okay, what does that accumulation of traffic over a couple of days do? And all these things are independent of the POA. And I think it's it's interesting data. The, the data says, yeah, they don't make putts at the same rate. So I think the reality there by announcers is, is correct. But I don't know if we're correct in assuming that it's the, the type of grass. Like you go to Wingfoot, Oakmont, 
best page black we never hear a thing about poe over there no. uh and, and i think that's a lot because you know again those are bigger greens over there so probably flatter greens so just does that factor into the make rates over there there's a lot of factors that go into this and i think it's not just as simple as saying ah yeah the poe is bumpy because well and uh, let, let, let me take factors. you to the numbers here let me take you to what you and i know we can share with the listeners that when we put these traffic rates uh, on the putting surfaces, we separate out the way we evaluate performance in, you know, the actual quantifiable things like number of bumps and wobbles and speed and distance that the ball rolls, and then a different measure of spike damage and overall quality. And there's the visible spike damage probably is one of the things most affected across the board when you rarely see that magnitude of impact on speed and uh, smoothness. That's basically what we figured so far, isn't it? Yeah, that's been one of the bigger findings from, you know, we test all these shoes and we have, we simulate about 140 rounds of traffic and we'll see 30, 40, 50% reduction in what we call spike damage, just a subjective rating of, oh, I can see the spiking. But we may only see 4% decrease in ball roll. We may only see 15% decrease in the bobble test, if people are familiar with that. So again, this is really the disconnect between our what our eyes and our perception is telling us and, okay, maybe some more quantifiable ways that we can measure it. And further, what I'd say is we've tested uh, on our bent grass surfaces and our POA bent surface. And consistently, the POA bent, anything with POA in it has performed better, is more resilient to traffic tolerance than the bent grass surface. So, you know, again, that kind of flies in the face of the data I see from these tour events where the POA surface courses, they have lower make rates because we know, hey, the traffic doesn't affect the POA quite as much as our bench rest. Now, maybe that's not applicable everywhere, but those are the things that we find and and kind of underscores the disconnect between, again, the the perception and reality. Well, and, and we're left hanging, right? Because there's a certain pridefulness that golf course superintendents take in the performance of their surfaces and uh, having them firm and smooth, uh, firm and true, you'd say, would be the two characteristics that they would care more about than color, honestly. That's sort of where the really top facilities would be. Even where they're demanding color, uh, most superintendents can get away with it. And so having them called bumpy, you know, having that in the vernacular of the golfer that's then reinforced by the announcers let me tell you, let's let anybody watching that telecast go out there, try to play on those greens and tell me they're not the smoothest greens they've ever putted on when those people are telling them they're bumpy. I would bet anybody money to go out and do that. I do think there is this role of traffic rate, Carl. And listen, as we wrap up here, I guess the numbers that we're trying to talk to these guys about is traffic rates and where the traffic happens governs the way you should look at that traffic rate. And then that's what we're saying. We're going to want to tie some nutrient use uh, to to make sure we don't wear those areas out. And that's certainly where we're going with our state park work and all the other analytical work that you're uh, working on now and, and developing in the future. So as we wrap up, what would be some ideas or places where you tell a superintendent just to get started with this? I would say if you want to get started with something like you know rounds per square foot, start on par three tees. Those are historically a tough place to manage. Usually, also smaller tee boxes too. You don't have the different sets. I would just start there and see, okay, you know how many rounds per year do you have? Do you have certain par threes? Longer ones may have bigger tee boxes, or so you know. I, I would start there and, and really think intentionally about how you manage that tee compared to maybe a par five tee or a par the back championship par four tee that that 
three people use in a year. Start thinking about if those two teas really need the same amount of inputs. And that's a good place to start, right? It's very low risk. And then if you start to see good results there, okay, maybe I up my end rate on the part three T and I backed it off on the championship. Okay, I don't really see any, you know, okay, that part three T looks better. Then you can start moving to fairways, bigger areas. And when we look at trying to reduce resource use, those big areas are key. So starting small, kind of bite off some small chunks at the beginning, be able to see those results, and then you can start to expand gradually and work yourself into a property-wide site-specific management program. All right, Carl. I never thought I'd enjoy talking to a golfer as much as I always enjoy chatting with you. Appreciate you taking the time out of our frigid cold weather these days uh, to get together and join me for Frankly Speaking. Really appreciate you taking the time, Carl. Take care. Thanks, Frank. Happy to do it. Carl Scamenti is a former professional golfer and currently Cornell Turfgrass Science Program Manager. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, and the Plant Food Company, providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents for 40 years. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Big thanks to Dan Dinelli and Carl Scamenti for taking time to chat. And Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.